0: Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kiss the feet. And kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other fifty. but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But for he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you, go in peace. The word of the Lord.
1: It was uh, author Dorothy Sayers who said, the people who crucified Jesus did not do so because he was a bore. Quite the contrary, he was too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality. We tend to limit who Jesus is, make him two-dimensional if you would, and tend to remake him in our own image. I like to think of Jesus as. This is seen very evidently in a horribly inappropriate scene from a movie called Talladega Nights in which Will Ferrell the comedian plays Ricky Bobby, the NASCAR driver. He's asked to say the grace, the blessing before the meal and sitting at the table is his wife, his two kids, Grandpa Chip, and his best friend Cal, who's also a NASCAR driver. When Ricky Bobby, played by Will Farrell, begins the prayer, he says, Dear Lord baby Jesus. And then he begins to give thanks for the KFC, the Taco Bell, and the Dominoes that are all across the table. He also begins praying for, he begins praying for his uh, for more money to come in to win championships. And each time he does, he says, sweet baby Jesus, dear Lord baby Jesus, at which point his wife interrupts and says, you know Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. And Ricky Bobby says, well, I I like the Christmas Jesus the best. And I'm saying the grace. When you say the grace, you can pray to grown up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus, whoever you want. And then he continues on in prayer. Dear tiny Jesus, with your golden fleece diapers and your tiny little balled up fat fists. Grandpa Chip yells, he had a beard. He was a man. Ricky Bobby gets into an argument with Grandpa Chip, at which point friend Cal says, you know, when I think of Jesus, I like to think of Jesus wearing a tuxedo t-shirt because that way, you know, he's sort of formal, but he's also ready to party. And that's how I like to think of my Jesus. One of the sons says, I like to think about Jesus as as a samurai fighting off evil, a ninja fighting off evil samurai. And they go on and on, and eventually he continues the prayer, dear eight pounds, six ounce infant Jesus, don't even know how to say a word yet, just a little cuddly infant, still omnipotent, we thank you. And he goes on praying for more victories. Sweet baby Jesus, ninja Jesus, fun party Jesus with a tuxedo t-shirt, liberal hippie guru Jesus who lets us do whatever we want, rule-making religious conservative Jesus who tells everyone off. All of us tend to make Jesus in our own image. Because rather than examining what Jesus actually did and said, we orient ourselves in the world, and posture ourselves in such a way that we say, Jesus must already approve what I already think about him. But what I want us to do in this series, and today, again, is actually look at what Jesus does and says. Who is he, and what do we do with him? You know the idea of bar jokes, right? Like, Jesus walks into a bar, the bartender says, what are you having? Jesus says, oh, I'll have a glass of wine. The bartender says, well, what do you want, red or white? Jesus pauses for a minute and says, on second thoughts, just make it water. I'll decide later what color I'm going to have. Luke 7, 36 to 50 is written like a bar joke, at least at the beginning. A Pharisee, a prostitute, and Jesus walk into a party. It's made for drama. It's set up in such a way that you want to see what's going to happen. Who is going to interact in what way? None of this is going to go well. A rabbi, a prostitute, and Jesus in the same room? But again, I want us to look at who Jesus is. What does he do and say? What do his actions reveal about his agenda, his kingdom, and the gospel he came to reveal and proclaim? And how do the woman's actions, in particular today, challenge our own limited responses to Jesus? The whole episode begins in verse 36 with a banquet at a Pharisee's house. A Pharisee invites Jesus over, he throws a party for all of his fellow rabbi Pharisees, the religious leaders. They're all sitting around the table, Jesus is probably in some version of a a guest of honor as a well-known and public speaker and healer, and in walks a woman of the city. We don't know specifically all the details about this woman but she has a reputation. Now, uh, according to the evidence that's out there, it was not uncommon when you had an ancient feast with a lot of guests that you actually left the door open in that ancient world. So, people could actually come in and stand along the sides. They didn't get to participate, but they could listen and see what was happening. This woman takes advantage of this. She's desperate to be in there where Jesus is. She comes in with this, this flask of ointment, which would have been a very expensive thing, very rare, and as soon as she gets in and is standing behind Jesus, she crumbles in weeping tears. Sobbing tears begin pouring out. She falls to the ground. She undoes her hair and begins to wipe Jesus' feet that has her tears all over his feet with her hair. And you see, this, is the, this makes sense because we've talked about this before, but you didn't sit at a table back then. You actually reclined on your left elbow. Your feet were behind you and all of your faces were facing the same way with a low table. So there he is, Jesus, leaning like this, his feet behind him, this woman at his feet, tears all over his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. And then she begins kissing his feet, and then she eventually gets the oil out and begins anointing his feet as she's weeping and wiping and tears. It's, It's a total mess. It's a total mess of hair and tears and sobs and snot and perfume and cries and touching. I mean, you can imagine the scene. Luke portrays the entire episode in exacting detail, step by step, full of imagery and emotion, saying, step into this scene, smell this scene, hear what's happening. Simon, the host, the Pharisee, responds in his heart, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman this is who is touching him if he really is a religious leader, he'd stop this woman. This woman has a reputation. The entire city knows who she is. She's a sinner. Almost all indications of the way the language is used is that she is a prostitute. A prostitute in the ancient world was a horrible thing. A little girl didn't grow up and say, oh, when I grow up, I'd like to be a prostitute. Why not? It's good living. In that ancient world where without a male head of household, you were impoverished, she was probably a woman without a father, a husband, or a grown son, which meant she had no other way to make a living besides begging or prostitution. Her life is one of misery and sorrow and shame. But she's also a prostitute. And Jesus is a rabbi. How can he let her touch him in this way? You know, it begs the sort of question, what sort of people should be in a church? In the 1960s in California, the Jesus movement began. One of the big leaders in the Jesus movement was Chuck Smith, the pastor of a Pentecostal church, who began preaching to the hippies and the surfers on the beaches of Southern California. Eventually, they started coming to his church. The problem was they came with long hair and blue jeans and bare feet And eventually they began demanding that they get to play their guitars in church. At the very cusp of the Jesus movement, people were aghast that you would let somebody into church in t-shirt and jeans without their haircut, let alone play a guitar, a rock instrument. Matt Chandler, one of my favorite preachers, who's the pastor of the Village Church outside of Dallas, when he took over the church, it was Highland Baptist Church And he changed it to a missional Bible church. In the midst of his preaching and the mission work that was being done, people were coming to faith from all over the city. And he eventually started getting angry emails from longtime members. One of the email trails ended up going like this. Do you know that there are people smoking in the parking lot before church? Wow. He said the most troubling was this one episode that happened when a particular woman who was a stripper in the city came to faith in Christ. And then you know what she did? She invited all of her friends who were strippers to come to church. And you know what strippers wear? They wear what strippers wear. So he started getting angry emails that he needed to make a speech about what's appropriate to wear in church and not. What do strippers wear when they come to church? Exactly what they wear all the time. They don't know any different. Do you want them here or not? Jesus' followers did not look like a buttoned up executive lunch. They did not look like an intelligent book club. They didn't look like fit yoga moms following him. They were a mess. They were a mess of people, of sinners of the poor, of the sick. And that's actually a real problem with being an Anglican church in the number one town in the state of Virginia is that you can't have a church that looks like that because we know we can't look like that. You can't live in a place like Vienna and struggle with depression or struggle in school or struggle with your money or struggle with your weight. You've got to be in control You've got to have it all together. You can never fall apart. I mean, think about how many of us are constantly worried about what other people will think if they find out, if they really saw how messy our house was, if they really knew what my kids were like, if they really knew how weak my marriage is. We're always hiding our mess. The question that Jesus will end up pushing back on is, are you more motivated by love or by fear? Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke said, the woman's reputation causes the Pharisee to be nervous, but for Jesus, her condition simply speaks of her need to be rightly related to God. The Pharisee is afraid because of her background. Jesus is filled with compassion for the very same reason. Does a person's reputation cause you to be nervous or disdainful or filled with compassion? Are there people that you try to avoid or are those the ones you're willing to be around? The question is this, does your heart break? Does your heart break for the prostitute? Does your heart break for the partiers and the cool kids? Does your heart break for your ex? Does your heart break for liberal atheists? Does your heart break for conservative religious types? Anne Lamott said, you know you've remade Jesus in your own image when he hates all the same people you hate. Jesus cares about the woman, but he also cares about Simon, and so he addresses Simon with this parable. He's speaking in the language of rabbis by getting into parables. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, about a year and a half's wages. The other owed 50, about two months' wages. Neither of them could pay their debts. So the moneylender canceled the debts of both. Which of the two will love him more? Simon responds, well, I guess the one who owed a year and a half's wages, who had more forgiven, will love him more. Jesus says, that's right, you have answered correctly. What Jesus is doing in the midst of this parable is he's differentiating between a religious and a gospel response. You see, in religion, you're constantly needing to measure up. So you're always comparing yourself to other people and you're uncertain if you've done enough, if you're good enough. Religious people tend to be deeply insecure and judgmental because they're never sure where they stand and they've got to keep somebody below them. The gospel is the opposite of that. The gospel says it's not just I need a little help, it's I am completely broken, more sinful than I'm willing to admit. But it also has the good news that I'm fully and completely loved and saved by grace, not my own goodness. The gospel humbles us because you know that you're sinful and you're not better than anyone. But the gospel also gives you confidence because of the cross and resurrection that you are fully loved and you can love others without needing to get anything in return. You know, the difference between a religious and a gospel response is that religious people, their heart will break when something bad happens to good people. But a person that has been reoriented by the gospel's heart will break when bad things happen to bad people too. The religious have a heart that breaks for victims. The gospel person also has a heart that breaks for perpetrators. Only when you realize God's love for you is by grace can you love the unlovable. So what should Jesus, a rabbi, do or have done with this woman who's a prostitute? Well, there's a lot of things he could or should have done based on the rules of the day, but what does he do? Jesus covers her shame by honoring her and extending grace to somebody who doesn't deserve it. He starts off by elevating the woman. He's talking to Simon, but he says, do you see this woman? And then he contrasts what Simon has done or failed to do and what the woman has done for him. You see, hospitality in that ancient culture was the highest obligation. In an honor and shame culture, if you hosted somebody well, it brought honor to your name. You had an elevated status in the community if you were able to host somebody like Jesus. But there were also certain cultural expectations of a host. And what Jesus does is he contrasts where the, the, the man, Simon, fails to live up to cultural expectations. He said, look, when I entered, you did not offer water to wash my feet, which would have been normal. She has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not greet me with a kiss like a handshake. She has not stopped kissing my feet. You could have gone an extra mile and had my head anointed with olive oil. She has gone the extra mile and has taken the most expensive perfumed oil she has and poured it all over my feet. Simon, you failed the cultural minimum, but don't worry. She's covered for you by going over the top for me. And here this woman is for the first time in her life, probably for the first time in her life, experiencing a man who does not use her or reject her, but honors her. And Jesus restores her publicly before them. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you go in peace in shalom in wholeness in harmony he affirms that she is spiritually forgiven saved you're spiritually whole you are right with god but he also restores her socially he doesn't do this privately he does it in front of everyone else on purpose he's basically saying to everyone else no longer exclude this woman as if she's unclean. I do not exclude her. God the Father does not exclude her. You will no longer exclude her. She is mine. See her in that light. The religious leaders, of course, are a little bit miffed by this. Who is this who forgives sins, they wonder? They're asking the right question. It's one the disciples asked. Who is this? In that ancient world, if somebody claimed to forgive sins, you were either delusional and blasphemous, essentially claiming to be God, or you actually were God's agent, the Messiah and Savior. There was no middle ground. And that's the question. Who is this Jesus? And how will we respond to him? James K.A. Smith wrote the book, You Are What You Love, where he goes on to say, you live for what you want the most, and then writes a book about the desires of our heart and the things we truly love. What we love is actually what Jesus is getting at in this entire episode. In verse 42 and 47, he, he highlights the phrase love. Now, which of them will love him more, the one forgiven much or forgiven little? Her sins, which are many, he acknowledges she's a sinner, are forgiven. She loves much. She has loved much. Jesus wants to know, what do you love? What do you desire and want the most? It's a question of worship. Let's go back to the story with the woman and think about some of the acts that she does here in another light, okay? I want you to hear this. What the woman does with Jesus and the hair and the ointment is lavish, shameful, culturally inappropriate, and sexually provocative. And perhaps the most beautiful and powerful act of love, desire, and worship ever recorded. Think about it with me. The woman enters this room filled with all these men and these religious leaders. Why does she enter? Probably because she's had an experience with Jesus before where she has now come to faith in him. She goes home and finds the only thing that's of value in her home, this alabaster jar of ointment. It was probably an heirloom, one of the only things she had of worth besides her own body. And she decides she's going to find Jesus and pour it out for him. And of course, when she does find Jesus, he happens to be at the home of a Pharisee, a religious leader. But because there's a way in, she enters, probably in absolute terrified fear. What if Jesus rejects her? What if everyone in the room judges her? She could be executed for doing what she's about to do. But she doesn't care because there's an even greater desire driving her. And of course, because she's encountered the grace of God at some point in the past, she's completely overcome and undone in the presence of Jesus. Before she even gets a chance to open up the perfumed oils, her tears begin falling all over Jesus. The word for weeping there is the deepest sobbing you can have. It's like a rainfall on a heavy storm. She's heaving and sobbing. And of course, as the tears fall all over Jesus, she decides to try and make things better. But in the process of trying to make things better, she makes things much worse. She falls to the ground behind Jesus' feet and then lets down her hair to try and wipe up Jesus' feet that are filled with all of her tears. But letting down your hair in public for a woman in that ancient world was forbidden. In second and third century Judaism, rabbinic writings say, if your wife is caught in public with her hair down, it is a divorceable offense. Joel Green, a commentator, said this is the equivalent of being topless in public today. Her act of letting her hair down was sexually provocative. And then she takes it a step further. As she's lying on the ground, she kisses Jesus' feet and anoints them with the oil. Again, the ancient Jews had some issues, but this was sexually provocative to them as well. Feet were something that were a euphemism, if you would. And you get this actually in the story of Ruth and Boaz. If you go back to the story of Ruth, Ruth is a widow who goes with her mother-in-law to Israel in order to find a kinsman redeemer to protect her family. She finds a a guy of reputation named Boaz who's older than her. And she has to be married to him in order to carry on the family line. The way that she goes about suggesting this to Boaz is Boaz has finished the harvest. He's partying with all of his harvesters and he falls asleep, probably drunk that night. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up to find that Ruth has uncovered his feet and laid down up against his feet. Boaz wakes up startled by this and says, what's going on? Who's down there? And she says, you are my kinsman redeemer. Basically, she's saying, I'm yours, you can have me, I just need your protection. Thankfully, Boaz is a man of honor and does not take advantage of her. He marries her, provides for her, and because of her willing sacrifice, Ruth is honored. But uncovered feet, falling down before them, was highly suggestive. Anointing the feet with oil in the Roman context, not the Jewish context, was the role of a Roman slave girl who in a feast like this would have been expected, required to provide sexual favors later. So you hear what's going on? And not only that, on the tense of the verbs is the imperfect, which means there's a continuous nature to them. It's not like she does these things and then it's done in five seconds. This was going on for some time. It's no wonder that Simon's a little bit uncomfortable at his own dinner party. He's probably picturing the headlines in the Post-Gazette the next day. Conservative religious leader throws party with stripper. He's done for, he knows it. Except this is exactly not what's happening. Do you see what's going on with the woman here? She's a total wreck before Jesus. Because for the first time in her life, she is loved without expecting anything in return. She's loved in spite of her dirtiness and her shame and her sins. No one has ever done this for her. And what does this prostitute do? She responds to Jesus in the only way she knows how, like a prostitute. The thing is, she's probably done these very same things with other men before, except the tears. But you have to remember, she's never been taught how to kneel, how to genuflect, how to receive at the table. She's simply doing what comes natural. What she does is totally inappropriate, horribly provocative, and amazingly beautiful. She is like David, who danced in his underwear before an audience of one. She's worshiping Jesus with all of her heart and soul and body. Just as an aside, you come here on a Sunday morning and we come here to worship, but my question for you is, do you come here and spend your time looking around? Do you wonder what other people will think? Or are you worshiping before an audience of one? I'm going to invite you not just today, but in the future to sing, actually sing, even if you sound terrible, to pray and not worry what others are thinking. And if you can't do it where you're sitting, move seats. It's actually much easier up here than back there. It's much harder to see people from up here. Sing, pray, worship as if no one else is around. And then do the same in your discipleship. Follow Jesus with reckless, blubbering, sobbing, pouring out abandon. It's okay to look like a mess if you're following Jesus. You know, the word that sort of kind of puts all of this love into its place is the word eros. And if you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, it's the Greek word for romantic or sexual love. But essentially, it's also underneath it is this idea of desire or passion The root of worship and discipleship as a Christian is to desire God the most. Don't think of eros as this bad thing. Think of eros as a misdirected thing in our lives. To be a disciple of Jesus is to reorient your eros, your erotic side, if you would, from the lust of other people's bodies, from the lust of money, from the lust of success, lust of approval, lust of whatever you want to put there, to an eros, a passion, desire, and lust for Jesus and Him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we are by nature judgmental people always comparing, fearful and insecure. Wash over us with the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for us and reorient the desires of our heart to the one who has given us everything. May we love you most. May we follow you deeply. May we worship you with all of our heart and mind and soul and body. Amen.